The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in free. Two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, Zot, 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 everyday anteaters. Hello, everybody. This is UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my special guest is Professor of Biomedical Engineering, Naomi Chesler. I'm excited to have her here today to describe the wonders and miracles that are being made in this incredible field of biomedical engineering, especially in her field of cardiovascular research and development. Professor Chesler is a young anteater arriving on campus in July 2020, so about nine months ago, and I hope the honeymoon is not completely over. We have much to talk about. Welcome, Professor Chesler. How are you today? I'm well. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Before we get into the specifics of your expertise, as is tradition with my guests, I always like to get to first know, like, where did you grow up and what did you like to do when you were a kid? So I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I was a big tree climber. Oh, okay. Yeah. My middle daughter has followed me in that pursuit. And I credit that with my entry into engineering, actually, because one year the tree people out front had to cut down the lowest hanging branch of the, like the best tree, you know, on our street, which was going, you know, it was interfering with traffic. And then I was sort of stumped as to how to get up that tree. So I tried to build a ladder in the basement and like, it was a disaster. So I thought, oh, maybe I could learn how to, you know, (laughs) build things. (laughs) Interesting. Very interesting. Now, Ann Arbor is a big university town, is, is it not? Absolutely. We could hear the football games from our front yard. Wow. So do you feel like that you had a maybe a little bit bigger sense of like going to university and what university was? Actually, you know what? I think I did not get that from growing up in a university town because when you're growing up, like, you know, certain things about a university and I would say growing up in a big 10 town, like I thought the football players and the basketball players were superstars. And that is not at all what college was like for me, but that's what I thought college was about. But I did get a sense because my father was a professor. So that gave me a little bit of insight into a little bit of insight into what universities are like. Yeah. What was his specialty? Sociology. Oh, okay. 
Yeah, so actually, we've published a few papers together, which was which has been wow. pretty cool. Wow, what a thrill! That seems like yeah, a, yeah, very cool. So, when did you start thinking about engineering? Well, so as I mentioned, there was that tree incident um, where I could not build a ladder to save my life. Um, (laughs) And I honestly, I blame my father for that, too. He didn't know how to build a ladder. But um, and neither did my mother, for that matter. But in any case, so that was number one. And then I think that in middle school, we had to do these like. I think it was called the Michigan Occupational Information Survey, you know, like where you would do this like bubble test and you would say, I don't want to lift heavy boxes. I don't want to work outside. I want to do this. You know, I like this. I like that. And it came up with, I don't really know how this happened. And this might be what they call a false memory. But my (laughs) recollection is that it came up with biomedical engineer. And so my assignment then was to write an essay about this career. And this will give you a little bit of insight into my age. I was an avid watcher of the $6 million man. Okay. And so, you know, that's great television right there. You know, you've got this soldier and he's injured and they rebuild him. They make him better than he was before. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, that sounds cool. You know, I'd love to do that. I'd love to, you know, make people better and stronger and help people become repaired. And I learned about the career through writing that essay. And it always just kind of was in the back of my mind. Well, maybe that would be something for me. We'll see. Yeah. So, I understand your undergrad work was at Smoth, Swarthmore College. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry about that. I hope that. you get hate mail for that. <laughs> Let's see how many Swarthmore grads are in the area. I don't know. Um, yeah. Sometimes we're called Swarthmorons, but, you know. Um, yeah. So Swarthmore is a small liberal arts college in Pennsylvania. It, uh, founded Quaker, actually. Haverford and Bryn Mawr and Swarthmore were all founded kind of together. And Haverford and Bryn Mawr were founded on the uh, separate education model for men and women. And Swarthmore was founded on the co-education model. So it was co-ed from the very beginning. And it was one of the very few programs that I could find, which was both a small school and offered an engineering program. So when I was applying to colleges, I was pretty sure I wanted to do engineering, but I wasn't 100% sure. And so I didn't want to go to a place that only did engineering, like a tech school, you know, MIT, Georgia Tech, Caltech, these places. Mm -hmm. I wanted to go someplace where I would have options if engineering wasn't for me. So that was one criteria. And Also, I wasn't really sure if I wanted a big school or a small school. So I applied to, you know, big schools and small schools. And Swarthmore was the only small school in that group. And so when it came down to it, I selected it. I toured it. I liked it. It was very unique in that, you know, it was small and people there were really passionate about learning. And also they had engineering, which, you know, I was pretty sure I wanted to study. Mm. Did you know that you'd always go to graduate school? How did that evolve? Well, I thought so. You know, I my general approach to life is, you know, have a goal as well as a backup plan. So, you know, my goal was to study engineering, but I had to have a backup plan if I didn't like it. My goal was to go to graduate school, but I had to be willing. I mean, like I, in my mind, I had to be willing to entertain other options if it didn't work out, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought I would go to graduate school. Yeah. Yeah. So you went to both MIT and Harvard. Is that correct? Yeah. So it's a joint program. It still exists, actually. It's called the Health Sciences Technology Division. 
it was called the Harvard MIT Division of Health Sciences and Technology. And one of the things that was really unique about the graduate program that I was in, which was called Medical Engineering Medical Physics, was that we did our engineering coursework and then we also took about a year and a half of medical school courses. Mm. Um, and of, of course, that was at Harvard Medical School. And at the time, I don't know whether this is still true, but at the time, Harvard Medical School had two tracks, kind of like a patient-centered track, let's say, and a science-centered track. And my classes were all in the science-centered track, which was just a lot of basic science engineering principles informed those courses, which was just a really good fit for all of the engineers who were interested in learning about the human body. Going to graduate school, was it a piece of cake? Was it like... No. (laughs) No, it was not. (laughs) How how rigorous was it? (laughs) Um, Well, I mean, it was tough. And, you know, you're just surrounded by a lot of really smart people. Yeah. Um, I actually, yes and no. I didn't go to that kind of a school, but go. Well, you know, I I was also surrounded by some really wonderful people. You know, actually, I met my husband in graduate school and and some really, really good friends that I'm still in touch with. But, you know, it was challenging. And you're a young person. You're trying to figure out what you want to do with your life. You're trying to learn how to learn. You're trying to advanced knowledge. Yeah. So I I think it was challenging. Yeah. Would it be like, wow, here's this concept. And it's like, you know, I don't really have a clue at this point, or was it just the matter of the sheer volume of memorization? Can you just define that just a little bit more or is it hard? Um, well, medical school courses had memorization, but engineering courses typically don't. I mean, like that's kind of the great thing about engineering courses is you're learning fundamental principles and you're applying them to lots of different situations. Mm. And they tried to teach our medical school courses that way too, but anatomy is just memorization. There's just no two ways about it. But what was so hard about it? Um, I don't know. I don't think the coursework was as challenging to me as trying to understand what research was all about. And maybe that's because of my undergraduate experience. So one of the disadvantages of going to a small school like Swarthmore, and by the way, like I did my junior year abroad. So I studied in England for a year. So I didn't even spend the full four years at this school. I was sort of bopping all over the place is that we didn't really have much of an opportunity for undergraduate research. And that is one of the really wonderful things about a a comprehensive university like UCI is that there's plenty of opportunities for undergraduates to get involved in research and undergraduates can publish papers based on their research. And so if that's your experience, and even if you don't publish a paper, even if you just work in a lab for three months here or three months there, and then do a summer there, at least you understand what the research process is. And so I did not have that experience. So I started graduate school without any idea what research really was other than like, oh, I know how to research a paper. You know, I know how to write a research, like a review paper, let's say, or summarize some literature, but I didn't have any idea how to do the science of research. And so there was a lot for me to learn. And so, you know, I tried to watch other people. I tried to ask questions, but ultimately you have to come up with your own ideas and that requires confidence in your own ideas and confidence that you have a unique perspective that's 
worthwhile pursuing. And I think that might be, that might have been the most challenging part for me. Mm, Interesting. So once you graduated with your PhD, it looks like you spent a little time doing postdoc work and, Uh and then you went to the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And it seems like you were there for what, almost 18 years or so. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I, my first faculty position out of my postdoc was at the University of Vermont. Uh And that was lovely. It's a lovely place. It's a lovely part of the country. But that was ultimately not a great fit for me academically or personally. So then I moved from there to Wisconsin. And yeah, I was there 18 years. Good long time. Excuse me just for a moment, Professor, while I update our listeners. If you joined us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is UCI Biomedical Engineering Professor Naomi Chesler, who specializes in cardiovascular research. And we're just getting to hear her career progression out of college, and she's just getting to her first major job out of school that was for 18 years or so at the University of Wisconsin. Professor, can you just give us a little briefing of what you were doing there all that time? Yeah. Research, teaching, service, the usual. Uh, (laughs) So yeah, I was building my career. I was trying to figure out how my perspective could advance knowledge, trying to figure out how to train students to advance science themselves and to get the kind of jobs they want and building collaborations. But you probably mean more specifically. So I was developing what we call preclinical models of pulmonary vascular disease. So I was trying to understand how it is that pulmonary hypertension develops, which is high blood pressure in the lungs, which is a disease that predominantly affects young women and is rapidly fatal, unlike Mm -hmm. systemic hypertension. So I was studying that disease and trying to understand mechanisms of progression and potential diagnostics. And at the same time, trying to understand how the mechanical properties of arteries change with disease progression and what sort of changes in the arteries lead to those changes in mechanical properties. Wow. And, you know, where have we come from when you first started looking at this area to now? Do you have a much better sense of it or is it still a mystery? We do. We do have much better sense. So first of all, medical science has been advancing rapidly. Like there have been new drugs developed that have been very exciting. And there's all sorts of trials out there. But what I'm most proud of is that when I started, people in the field really thought that the stiffness of arteries was irrelevant. They were only concerned about the resistance of arteries leading to increased afterload on the right ventricle so that the right ventricle has a harder time pumping. But I really feel proud that I was able to convince the community with data from other researchers and some exciting clinical data that arterial stiffness is also important and also affects right ventricular afterload. So, you know, stiffness is kind of a mechanical concept uh, or a a mechanical property. And as a mechanically trained engineer in the field, I was more interested in that than many of our clinician collaborators and science collaborators. And as one of the few engineers in the field, I I feel like I had a unique perspective and I was able to 
show that this could be important. So that's, I think, the value of having unique perspectives and also diverse teams with different backgrounds and skill sets and interests all working together on the same problem, in this case, the same disease. Did you have a lab there? Oh, yes. Yes. And is it a a wet lab? Yep. Yep. Mostly I'm an experimentalist. And also we work with clinicians to do studies in people, which is really difficult, but really valuable. And it's really amazing when patients are willing to enroll in a study and help us collect data to better understand their disease. I don't ever take that for granted. But we also do preclinical studies and benchtop studies and just try to use whatever tools we can to understand the disease. Is it a hereditary disease? It can be. There is a hereditary form of the disease. It's called familial pulmonary arterial hypertension. But there's also a form of it that uh, develops for reasons we do not understand. And as I mentioned, it occurs four times more often in women than in men. So that's perplexing. And then there's other forms that we know the cause. For example, you can have pulmonary hypertension secondary to left heart disease. But even though we know the cause, you know, left heart disease, that doesn't mean we understand how to treat the problem other than treating the left heart disease, which is not so easy. So over time, I broadened my research to expand from pulmonary arterial hypertension, which is the one with the big sex difference, into other forms forms of pulmonary hypertension that develop from other forms of disease, including left heart failure and also sickle cell disease. So sickle cell disease leads to pulmonary hypertension. And we've tried to contribute to understanding that disease process as well. How did coming to UCI come about for you? Well, I guess 18 years is a long time to be at one place. I was ready for a change And I was ready to change, let's say, the balance of my work activities. So I felt like I'd been pretty successful in research and teaching and service. And I learned a lot about how to mentor people and how to help them be successful. And I wanted to have an impact on a larger scale. And to do that, I needed a leadership position. And so the center was looking for a director and focused on cardiovascular science, surrounded by a really rich medical device industry in Orange County, and being part of the Department of Biomedical Engineering here at UCI, which is filled with great people, just seemed like a really good opportunity for me. Great. And you just mentioned being the director, and that's of the Edwards Life Sciences Center for Advanced Cardiovascular Technology, correct? Yes, correct. Can you tell us a little bit more about the center, like what the mission is? So our mission is to advance innovation discovery and lead translation and commercialization and train the next generation of leaders in cardiovascular science, engineering, and technology. So it's really what all faculty want to do, but specific to cardiovascular science, engineering, and technology, I think. And we also are very committed to the values of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and hope to address cardiovascular health disparities in our work. And I know that you've been very involved in that area. When did you start to to become sensitive to this issue? When when did you start to become... When did I realize I was white? (laughs) You know... You know, Professor, I have to admit, I've been doing the show for about four years, and 
it was about three years ago that I realized the same thing. And I had, <laughs> I had no idea. Was there a certain something that came to your attention that kind of woke you up? That- well, I'll tell you, I mean, I think that my first entry into this field of diversity, equity, and inclusion was as a woman in engineering. So I didn't mm-hmm. start off saying we have to all be anti-racist, which is what I now think. I started off saying, let's get more women in engineering. How do we help more women in engineering succeed? How do we get more women students in engineering? As a woman in engineering, that was a very obvious thing to me that there were biases and that there were limited opportunities for the kind of mentoring I wanted and, and would have benefited from. And so that was, that was number one. Okay. So I spent a lot of time working on ways to promote women in engineering. And I did that as a graduate student, as an early faculty member, and most certainly as a senior faculty member, I was the director of the women faculty mentoring program at Wisconsin before I left. And I've done a lot in that area. And just for a moment, when you were in grad school, did you literally feel like you know, that's something I want to do. And they're just discounting me because I'm a woman. Um, I guess what I felt was isolated. And that was obvious to me as I, I, I was isolated. <laughs> I didn't just feel it. Well, I was it, isolated. Was it like, was it just like 85% men and 15% women? In what way were you isolated? Oh, yeah, it might have even been 10%. I have no idea what it was. Yeah. Um, but I was isolated in that there were few women in my engineering classes and there were few women in my engineering labs. So there just were not a lot of other women around to talk with mm. and to learn from and to commiserate with. Mm. And then, I mean, I think the isolation piece was obvious, but I think, remember how I said before about confidence? Mm. So women in science and engineering often lack confidence. There's something called an imposter syndrome where women think that they're imposters and that someday someone's going to find out that they're not really qualified to be there. So that's kind of the same as a lack of confidence. I think that you don't really think you deserve to be there. You just happen to be there through a quirk and, you know, it's all going to fall apart someday. So I think that that lack of confidence was what we would now call stereotype threat that I was being sensitive to other people's lower expectations of me and that was affecting my confidence. So I would say that was one way in which my gender affected me in graduate school. I don't recall any incidents of overt sexism. Just to talk about these things, this imposter syndrome, actually, it was an interesting concept that I heard that pretty much all engineers have that. You know what I'm saying? Do you think like, well, yeah, I've heard that, but No, I I haven't heard that, actually. Oh, you haven't? No. Oh, interesting. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, (laughs) just a little little piece of information. (laughs) Do you know where you heard it? Yeah, actually, my next door neighbor works for Qualcomm for a long, long time. He just talks about how, and we weren't talking about in terms of gender, just how like most engineers have that feeling. Interesting. Well, I would, as an engineer, I would be interested in seeing the data. Okay. Yeah. Very good. Here we are. You as director of Edwards Life Sciences Center for Advanced Cardiovascular Technologies. Does that mean you're working with Edwards a lot, or is it just a matter of they support the center? What's that all about? 
Well, a representative from Edwards Life Sciences was very involved in the search for this position that mm. I have now taken. And that person is also very involved in our strategic planning committee. And I think we're both really hoping that Edwards Life Sciences is going to be a strong partner moving forward in developing technologies for cardiovascular health. But that's the relationship. But they've given a donation to create the center and to support the center. But it doesn't mean that I'm working with them. But it is important to me that Edwards Life Sciences is proud of the work that we do as a center with their name on it. Mm-hmm. And how is the center organized? Is it another lab or is do multiple labs kind of feed into it? Yeah, so it's a collection of faculty and staff who are all working together towards the mission. So I'm the faculty director And I also run my own research lab and there's an assistant director who's like the staff lead and she does everything. She's amazing. That's Anne Fain. And I was very happy that she didn't just disappear when I got hired. That would have been awful. (laughs) (laughs) So she really runs many, many aspects of the center. And she also supervises other staff that we have. And since it's Staff Appreciation Day today, on the day of our recording, I'll give a shout out to Emil and Jonathan, who are two of our fabulous staff members who run some of our core facilities. And that's the staff side of it. And then the faculty side, you know, there's like individual faculty members all running their own labs Mm -hmm. to advance the mission. And some of those faculty members are not only members of our center, but are members of other centers. They all have appointments in biomedical engineering, although that's not a requirement for center membership. And so the idea is that we all work together and we all work separately. Is Professor Elliot Bofinick, is he part of the center? Yeah. Have you interviewed him too? I haven't actually. He's a future interviewee, (laughs) I I hope. So what's his expertise area that he brings to the center? So he develops novel sensors for monitoring cardiovascular diseases. And also he studies mechanobiology. And not only is he a really inventive scientist, but he's just a really enthusiastic and fun person. So he's really great to work with because he just gets so excited by ideas and is just really eager to try things out. So that's a lot of fun. Yes, 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 yes. I will say several years ago, I interviewed Vince Cerf, who is one of the co-fathers of the internet, like, you know, the internet. Oh, yes. Yes. And uh-huh. he was on campus and he said, boy, if I was going back to school now, what field would I want to get into? It would be biomedical engineering. Nice. So we're in terms of this area of cardiovascular. Where are we? Yeah, I think we're at a really exciting inflection point. So biomedical engineering is one of the newer engineering disciplines. And it, in my case, it brings together medicine and engineering, but it also brings together biology and engineering. And it's really, it's a connecting field in that way. And I think the future of science is really connecting more and more things to try to solve problems. So AI, machine learning, high throughput, biological testing, human-induced pluripotent stem cells. I mean, all of these exciting developments can be tackled from the lens of biomedical engineering, omics technologies. So 
I think the biomedical engineers are trained in a very interdisciplinary way and are taught to sort of connect different ideas and different fields together. And I think that's exactly what we need to solve really big problems. Mm. And I'll also say that (laughs) I don't know why, but there's a lot of biomedical engineering activity around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, you know, we've talked about that a little bit before, but I'm really proud of that. Our main society, the Biomedical Engineering Society, has given a diversity award for many years. So we've been on top of that. And we have at our big conference, we have not only a a lunch for outstanding women, we have one that's focused on Black and Hispanic achievements. And now we have an LGBTQ mixer every year. And so we're really working hard to make our community inclusive. And I feel like we're kind of out front in that way amongst other engineering disciplines. And, um, you know, to that point, a group of women faculty in biomedical engineering just published an article really urging the NIH to address systemic racism in funding, which Mm -hmm. is critical to career progression for any faculty member in the biological sciences or biomedical engineering. You know, you got to get funding to do your research or you won't succeed. So there's this big funding gap. Grants from white principal investigators get funded at twice the rate of those of Black principal investigators. And that's when you control for a whole bunch of variables. And that means that we're training all these people and then we're cutting the rug out from under them when they're poised to really have an impact and to bring their research forward and to make advances. And this is happening while we're all well aware of how diverse teams are better at solving problems. So this group of us pointed out this discrepancy and told the NIH what we think they ought to be doing about it. And I don't know, we'll see. We'll see what happens. But, you know, to me, that says that my community of peers are out there not just solving technologies problems and health problems, uh, solving problems in technology and solving problems related to health and disease, but really trying to make our world a better place. And to my mind, that includes addressing health disparities, addressing racism, and addressing opportunity gaps. Very good. Excuse me one more time, Professor. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're just joining us, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, the UCI Conversation Show. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest is UCI Biomedical Engineering Professor Naomi Chesler. She's also Principal Investigator of the Vascular Tissue Biomechanics Laboratory. Professor, so is that your laboratory? Yes, that was the laboratory name I had at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Oh, um, It's always very challenging to find a name that really captures everything that you do. So I think I'm just going to rename it the Chesler Lab, and then I won't ever have to rename it. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> gotcha. How big is your lab? Well, so we're in a transition point right now because I'm still moving the group from Wisconsin to Irvine. But at the moment, I have a research scientist and a surgeon, actually, a surgical fellow in my lab. And let me think, two master's students, two PhD students, and going to be bringing on a few more people in Irvine in June, which I'm really excited about. So people are coming from Madison? To UCI, is that common when a professor leaves one university to come to another? It depends, I would say. Uh, I really thought Southern California would be a big draw, but a lot of people are staying because 
you know, they chose the Midwest for a reason, you know, their family are there or their family are nearby. So, you know, people have lives, people have families, but sometimes people move. Yeah. How has COVID been the whole time you've been at UCI? It's been under these COVID circumstances. Are there any specifics that, you know, has it limited your research? Has, has your lab even been open? Yeah, COVID's been a pretty big challenge. I was really lucky that I got to visit out here with my husband before COVID so that he and I could visit together and make a decision about accepting the offer. It would have been really hard to accept if we'd never even been out here. But during the negotiation, COVID was happening. And of course, we had no idea what the future would look like. We did not anticipate it would take this long. It would still be going on the way it is right now, right? Right. So... The way I planned the move, I think I was pretty lucky to be not too affected by COVID because a lot of my team is still in Madison. The work can go on there with planning around capacity limits for space. And then my plan was for this first year in Irvine, I would not do benchtop research. I would just focus on the administrative role of my new position. So that's worked out really well. My benchtop research is happening in Madison. And here I'm focusing on, you know, developing center level activities. So we've written a number of proposals that will support the center, an equipment proposal and one to hire more faculty and one to bring in underrepresented students to do summer rotations and a planning grant for an even larger grant. So that kind of stuff doesn't support my research as much as it supports the center itself. So that's been really good. And then also I've been able to focus on developing a strategic plan and meeting people. Of course, because of COVID, all those meetings have been Zoom, which I guess we're all getting used to. (laughs) I'm not typically late to Zoom meetings. That's one advantage. You know, traffic doesn't interfere. Right. In terms of your research, do you look at AFib and ablation? I don't typically. No. Do you have a particular interest in that? Uh, Yeah, because I have it. (laughs) Ah, okay. Um, And just for my listeners, AFib is when your heart goes into an irregular heartbeat. And correct me if I'm wrong, Professor, it's fairly common, you know, as you get older. And they could either correct it with drugs usually, or they'll have to do like the the paddles on the chair. Like they actually stop your heart and they... They shock it back into a regular rhythm. But then if it happens a couple, you know, several more times, it starts to become chronic. They'll do an ablation where they put a a micro cable up through your thigh and it goes into your heart. And this is outpatient. You go, in my case, I went in in the morning, it was out in the afternoon. And they'll see these circuits that are firing that puts your heart into an irregular rhythm and they'll they zap it yeah they zap it right they they stop it (laughs) it. yeah that's the technical term yeah (laughs) it's unbelievable what they can do but now that i've said all that you're not in that area (laughs) (laughs) i'm not and in fact i don't really know the medical treatment for it. And I didn't realize that they would use the paddles for that. My understanding had been that one of the consequences of atrial fibrillation, if your atria is not pumping well, is that you can get clot developing in the atria. And then those can go and cause a lot of problems like stroke. Right. That is a danger. 
Yeah, but no, that's not my area. So I told you before that I work in pulmonary hypertension, which is high blood pressure in the blood vessels of the lung. Mm -hmm. And that often leads to right ventricular failure. So for the most part, I work in this kind of niche, which is right ventricular function. So the right ventricle pumps blood to the lungs where it gets oxygenated and then it returns to the left atrium. And then it goes from the left atrium, which of course in you is a little problematic. And then it goes to the left ventricle and from the left ventricle, it gets pumped out to the body. So the left ventricle is actually structurally and geometrically and embryologically different from the right ventricle. And the right ventricle is just less well studied because it's less well understood, I think. So that's really what I focus on is the right ventricle. In your career, where have we come from? You mentioned that the drug treatments have been significant. Yeah. So the drug treatments for pulmonary hypertension have advanced, but there's still no drug treatments for right ventricular failure. So as I mentioned, the right ventricle is really different from the left. And so you can't just take a drug for left ventricular failure and use it for right ventricular failure, but we don't know any better. We don't have any drugs that are specific. I mean, one of the reasons I think the right ventricle is so interesting, I mean, I I always root for the underdog. So we've got this, you know, ventricle that's less well studied and it's really different. And not only that, but it fails secondary disease that's more common in women. But the left ventricle doesn't appear to have these same sex differences. So that just makes it even more interesting to me. So why is it that sex differences are important in right ventricular function, but not in left ventricular function? I just think that's a really interesting question. Yeah. And I understand, has the center submitted a Department of Defense uh, equipment proposal? What's that about and how's it going? Oh, I don't know how it's going. That's the one thing about grants. You send it in and I don't know, then you wait. <laughs> gotcha. You're waiting to see on that. Is there yeah. another submission to the American Hospital Association? So they're all different. So I mentioned that, you know, this year I've been focusing on kind of center activities and directing my research in Madison for the benchtop activities. And so the center activities have been this Department of Defense grant, which we did in August, which is for equipment. So I mentioned, I think that we have some core facilities, which are shared facilities that all the faculty in the center and their staff can use. And I'd like to expand those core facilities and bring more equipment in so that people can do more work, more cutting edge work. And so that was an equipment grant to the Department of Defense. And we submitted a grant to the American Heart Association to fund summer students from underrepresented backgrounds to do research on our campus, to learn about research and hopefully find that research is exciting and challenging and for them for a career. And let's see, we've written a, it's very strange. It's a planning grant. So it's a grant to provide money so that we can write a grant. (laughs) (laughs) And that one is, yeah, exactly. Right. (laughs) So the grant that we would write, the big one would be like, you know, many millions of dollars, like 25 million or something like that. And so putting together a project of that size takes time. So now the National Science Foundation has started giving people a little bit of money to help them plan to successfully win one of those bigger grants. And that one is going to focus on engineering approaches to solving race-based health disparities 
uh, race-based cardiovascular health disparities. So I'm pretty excited about that because, you know, it ties together a lot of my interests and passions. So diversity, equity, inclusion, anti-racism, cardiovascular health, engineering, all those pieces come together in that one proposal. And it would allow us, if funded, the bigger one anyway, to do some really important things. I don't know if you read the New York Times article a while back about how pulse oximeters, those little clips that goes on your finger to tell you whether you're getting enough oxygen Mm. to your tissues, those actually are not very accurate in highly melanated people. In other words, blacks. Oh, really? So there's an example of a, a medical technology that is effectively racist. Like it functions differently in different race people. So do they know why? Yeah, they do. And it just needs to be redesigned. I mean, and it also says that it wasn't tested on people with different skin colors. In fact, the same was true of those automatic faucets, you know, that are everywhere in airports and places where you don't want to be touching handles. They used to not work very well for people with dark skin, which I mean, who were they testing it on and who were the engineers building it? Well, they were probably all white or light skinned. And it just shows that you really need diverse teams to generate solutions that work for our population. But the healthcare example is more important. I mean, you know, we were making medical decisions based on technologies that were not providing unbiased information. And that's really problematic. And we can do better than that. Absolutely. And Professor, is the Center's advisory board, is that evolving? Yeah. Right. So that's another thing that I did when I came on is I looked at our advisory board and I also felt it wasn't very diverse. And so I recruited some new people on that. We've got a great team. I'm really hoping we can meet in person in the fall. I'm not sure, but we've got cardiologists and technologists and folks in industry and folks in academia. And I'm really hoping that by having a diverse group of experts giving us guidance on how we can have the greatest impact, then we will really raise our game and improve our national, maybe international presence. Fantastic. You're working on a five-year strategic plan also. Can you give us any sense of what that is? Yeah. Yeah. So anybody coming in to lead a new organization has got to identify strategic directions for the future and make sure that everyone on the team is committed to the same vision and the same priorities. And so it's really important to write it down and share it and discuss it and agree on it and then work on it. So that's really what I've been working on. And we've got three main pillars, which are education, research, and diversity. And we've sort of got inward facing priorities and outward facing priorities. So the education inward piece is like training our graduate students and postdoctoral fellows and making sure that we mentor them. And then the you know, education outward piece is generating a workforce that's ready to go be productive in the local medical device industry or the national medical device industry and bring their skills out into the world and create innovations. And then you know, similarly for research, we want to increase our capacity to do research, increase the impact of our research. And then in diversity, we want to increase the diversity of our center in terms of representational diversity, meaning identity, as well as disciplinary diversity. And then in terms of the outward facing, that's the health disparities research is that we want our research to address health disparities in cardiovascular health and try to improve health care for all. Very good. 
Professor, we've covered a lot of material. Is when you're not working, do you have time for any hobbies? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been reading some pretty good books, but I have three daughters, so I'm pretty busy. Yeah, and helping them adjust to life in Southern California during a pandemic has been quite challenging. I, I bet it has. Well, but they're all doing great, and I'm going to have them listen. So I want to give them a shout out and say. Thank you for helping me make this move. And thank you for being you, ladies. Uh, I love it. I love it. Thank <laughs> you, Professor Naomi Chesler. Thank you so much for being with us and giving us this walk through your career and your area of expertise. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. Thank you again to UCI biomedical engineer and professor Naomi Chesler for sharing her expertise about cardiovascular research and everything going on with the Edwards Life Sciences Center for Advanced Cardiovascular Technology. The field of biomedical engineering is revolutionary, and we wish Professor Chesler and her team all the best as they push the envelope to develop new techniques to help people. I also want to acknowledge Professor Chesler's commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion and its importance. Kudos. Here, here. And as always, thank you to my blues man, Fred Kaplan, for all the tunes on today's show from his fantastic blues CD, Signifying. Check it out. And now coming up next at the top of the hour, Entrepreneur Nation with Ash Kumra, where new guests every week discuss creative solutions to common business problems. Stay tuned. You are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The UCI Conversation Show, where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anteaters. I'm your public affairs host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. I can always be reached at kboss at KUCI.org. And don't forget, all my interviews are available on my podcast website at www.bossenmeyer.com. Don't forget to stay safe, keep wearing those double masks, and keep socially distancing. And get that vaccine as soon as you can. We are all in this together. Thank you again for listening. Have a great evening and keep working hard. Happy trails. We'll see you next week.